Psalm 6, and we'll read the whole of the psalm. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. Let's pray. Lord God uh, and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would have mercy on us. As a loving and uh, gracious Father, uh, and that you would now speak to us as we reflect on your words, that I would speak as one speaking the very words of God, and that we would uh, hear and listen, test all things, hold fast to that which is good. Uh, Lord, we ask that you might stir us up to really depend on you and rely on you, to love you and to trust you even more. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. They used to say uh, that there were no atheists in the trenches, uh, by which they meant that in a time of war, as, uh, as people are being attacked, as shells are coming in, as bullets are flying past, uh, as bombs are exploding, there are very few people who don't find themselves calling out to God, even if they don't know who the God is that they're, talk- that they're calling out to. There seems to be ingrained into us as human beings this desire, this need to cry out to God, even if we don't know who God is uh, or what he is. Of course, as Christians, we do know uh, who God is, uh, we do know who we're crying out to. We're crying out to our God, we're crying out to our Father who's rescued us, who's forgiven us, uh, who's reconciled us to himself uh, through the death of his son Jesus. But even if we know the who of who we're crying out to, we don't always know the how, we don't always understand the how of the how that we go about it. Many of us, I think, never really get beyond the basics of just calling out to God for help. But the Psalms are so helpful, I think, for us because they show us the life of faith. They show us the Christian life. They show what it means to cry out to God, to relate to God. And they enable us to see that there's much more, uh, there's much more substantial and satisfying kind of ways of relating to God than just firing off a prayer and hoping for the best. It's not that the Psalms teach us, if you like, the kind of the right formula, the steps that we have to take, and if we get the steps right, then God will hear us. That's not what this is about. What the Psalms do is they teach us to relate to God in the way that He wants us to relate to Him, the way that we were made to relate to Him. 
So it's not so much a formula, but in fact, the most satisfying and the most wonderful way that we can relate to God. They teach us how to enjoy God. They teach us how to enjoy God even as we're crying out to God for help. And that's exactly what this psalm that Jacob read for us is doing. Uh, Psalm 6 is a psalm that teaches us to enjoy God even as we're crying out to him for help. There are three uh, key sections in the psalm and each of them demonstrates something important about the way that we relate to God. And the opening section is in verses 1 to 3. There we find David crying out to God and first of all he says that to God, don't discipline me or rebuke me. Verse 1, Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. And then he pleads with God to go a step further than that and to have mercy on him and to heal him. So verse 2, have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. Uh, And then he says to God, you've got to do this. How long is it going to be before you you hear my prayer. My soul is in deep anguish, he says. How long, Lord? How long? It's not clear to us what situation it was that David was facing, but it's clear from those those first three verses, that uh, sorry, from the last three verses, that this psalm has something to do with David facing opposition from enemies. Uh, In that situation, we'll come to that a bit later, uh, David is speaking to his enemies and saying, get away from me. Uh, it is clear as well that this situation has really kind of laid David low. His soul is in deep anguish. Uh, he's weeping night after night. But the fact too that he uses terms like rebuke or discipline, anger, wrath, mercy, those words suggest that David is also acutely aware that the kinds of difficulties that he is he's facing are the result in some way of his sin. He doesn't mention here any specific sins. In some of the other Psalms, he does that. He he talks about what it is that's happened and, and and he confesses that to God. Here, he doesn't do that. That might be because he doesn't, he's not aware of any particular sin that he needs to confess, something that's particularly weighing on him. It may be that he's just kind of aware of the mass of sin and contradictions that live within him. That kind of mass of sin and, uh, and, 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 and sinful contradictions that cause the disapproval and the discipline of God. What David is concerned about here is not so much the damning judgment of God which condemns people to hell. What he is thinking about here is the refining discipline of a loving father who's not content to leave his children in their sin. It's a mistake, I think, for us to think that or to believe that just because God has forgiven us in Jesus, reconciled us to himself through the cross and adopted us into his family, it's a mistake to think that then because of that, he just sits idly by with a kind of smiling and benevolent indifference while we continue to live in ways that dishonour him. On the contrary, actually, because we've been brought into the family of God, God is more determined to refine us and to change us and to make us more like Jesus than he was before. He's more determined to purify us and refine us because we're part of his family. And David knew that only too well. 
David is well known in the Bible for his terrible downfall where he slept with another man's wife, he got her pregnant and then he had her husband killed. And although God forgave David for that, the ramifications of his sin didn't end with God's forgiveness. In the aftermath, God could say to David both, the Lord has taken away your sin, you are not going to die, but also the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. There is both forgiveness and ongoing consequences of David's sin in this world and in this life. We need to understand as Christians that if we've received God's grace in Jesus Christ, we're forgiven, we're adopted into his family, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't get angry at what we've done or that he doesn't discipline us and teach us and correct us and train us in righteousness. And so realising that, David lays himself before God and he asks that God, even as he rebukes him, even as he disciplines him and refines him, David asks that God would have mercy and kindness in the midst of that. David realises that God is justified, he's right. David is a sinner. And so he does the only thing that he can do. He casts himself on the mercy of God. He asks God to give him grace rather than anger and wrath. He asks him to give him the very opposite of what he deserves. And that's a good place to be, actually. I don't mean it's a good place to be to be suffering, but it's a good place to be to have that humility. That humility, in fact, ought to be the hallmark of our relationship with God as his children. We ought to always come to him and say, God, I'm not what you want me to be. I know you've forgiven me. I know you've saved me in Jesus Christ. I know that I'm part of your family. But I know that I'm not what I, I ought to be. I know, I know I'm not what you've called me to be. I'm sorry for that. But in your displeasure, don't destroy me. Don't wipe me off the face of the earth. Don't crush me so that I can't go on. Don't make me weep night after night. Instead, change me. Be gracious to me. Heal me. Rescue me. Don't let me just keep living in the way that you want me to live, that, that you don't want me to live. Don't let me keep being this massive contradictions, this massive disordered desires, this disordered loves. Make me like Jesus. That humility ought to shape our lives, even when we're not suffering. Because this side of Jesus' return, even... Uh, if our sin can't destroy our relationship with God, it will hurt that relationship. And so we always need the mercy of God. We always need that. We can always cry out to God, God, I need your mercy. So David cries out to God for help. He complains to him about his situation. In verses 4 to 7, he goes on to give him the reasons why God should listen to him. Uh, so it's important to recognise that David doesn't just ask God to help. He doesn't just fire off the prayer and then wait to see what will happen. 
but he works to convince God of why, of why, the reasons why he should help. Uh, that's maybe not a step that we're all used to. Uh, so perhaps you, you, you do cry out to God, uh, you do ask him to help, but maybe it doesn't ever really go much beyond that. But David wants to anchor his request to God in who God is. So that's part of what it means to pray in line with uh, the will of God. David is, David is consciously showing, uh, he's showing to God and also to himself, I think, in some ways, that what he's asking is not a selfish request. When he says to God, God have mercy on me, that's not just because he's being selfish. His request is in line with the character and the nature of God. So he's helping to show, to demonstrate to God that he's praying in line with who God is, rather than just on the basis of who David wants God to be. And it's helpful for us to do that as well, to anchor our prayers in the character and the nature of God, because they help us to see that what we're asking for then is not just our selfish requests of God, but actually they're the very things that God calls us to seek him for. So David gives three reasons. He says, first of all, in verse 4, turn, Lord, and deliver me, save me. Here it is. Why? Because of your unfailing love. Why should God deliver David? Because of his unfailing love. We've seen that we deserve nothing from God, really, but, but, uh, but anger and wrath. But we can hope for mercy. But in some ways, that's a scary place to be, isn't it? It's scary to be in a position uh, where where we don't have control over God's answer to our prayer. At its very foundation, mercy is something that we can't control, that we can't demand. You must show me mercy. It doesn't work like that. Mercy comes out of the heart, out of the generosity of the person who gives it. The ultimate hope, the the ultimate ground of our hope for deliverance and salvation rests then in the character of God, in the will of God. Will or will he not show mercy? That's a scary place to be. We don't know the answer to that question. Will he or will he not show, show, show mercy? David says, I know because of your unfailing love. I know what kind of God you are. One of the most astonishing uh, descriptions of God that we find in the Bible is the one that God uses when he describes himself to Moses. He says, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. God says, that's my name. It's a long name, isn't it? But it's a great name, it's a, great, it's a description of who he is. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Of course, it's one thing for God to say that, isn't it? You know, we say things all the time about who we are and what we're like. But God has not just said that, God has demonstrated that. He's demonstrated his long-suffering patience with humanity. He could have wiped us out when Adam and Eve rebelled against him, but he's let the world go on. And he's demonstrated his long-suffering and patience and graciousness and mercy in sending his son to die for us. And Paul says, if God has done that, then won't he give us all the other things that we could ever possibly need? 
Won't he graciously give us all things? You see, rather than being scary, waiting for God's mercy, it's actually a good place to be because of God's unfailing love. It's a good place to be because we know that God is good. We can throw ourselves into the arms of the Father with great confidence because we know who he is. He's the Father who sent the Son. And we can throw ourselves into the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ because we know who he is. He's the Son who left the glory of heaven in order to die in our place. And we can throw ourselves into the arms of the Holy Spirit who's come to dwell in us and to live with us and to comfort us and to console us. It's helpful, I think, to reflect on this question as we pray. Why is it that I expect God to answer my prayer? Why is it that I hope that God will answer this prayer? Is it his unfailing love in Jesus? Is it his love as a father, having been adopted into his family? Or is the reason that you hope that God will answer something else? Is it because you think that you deserve it? Or because you've earned it? Or because you've used the right formula? All those things sound good, don't they? And they appeal to us because they give us the appearance of confidence. God will answer my prayer because I've been good this week. But actually, we never know. They never, firm, they never are a firm foundation. We never know whether we've been good enough. And one week we might, be, we might kind of do okay, and the next week we don't do okay. And then we think, well, how do I know that God will answer me? The only foundation is the unfailing love of God. The only foundation is something outside of us in the very character of God himself. And we can indeed ask ourselves the opposite question as well. Not only, why do I hope that God will answer this prayer? Why do I, do I expect that he might? But also, why do I expect that he might not? Do I think that he won't answer this prayer because I haven't lived up to the standard? because I haven't been good enough, because I haven't prayed it in the right way. Maybe God won't accept me. Maybe Jesus won't accept me because I haven't said the words the right way. If we live like that, we'll never have any confidence. But if we know that God hears us, not because of anything in us, but because of his unfailing love, because of who he is, not who we are, then we'll have confidence to pray as David prayed. Lord, have mercy on me. Turn and deliver me because of your unfailing love. Next, David asks God to have mercy for a second reason. Verse 5, among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? That might sound like a curious reason for God to, someone, to save someone. Uh, but David's point is, is that for him to die at this moment would be for him to be robbed of the opportunity to praise God on earth. For him to die at this moment would be uh, for him to be robbed of the opportunity to praise God on earth. So for David, one of his darkest fears is to no longer be able to praise God and to express his devotion to him among, among the people. 
John Piper uh, famously coined the phrase, you might have heard it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, which riffs off the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer one, which says that the chief end of human beings of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what we were made for, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And David says, that's what I know and that's what I experience, and you can't take that away from me. Don't let me lose that. That is the supreme joy in the world, to know God and to glorify Him and to enjoy Him. David is in effect saying here, God, don't let me lose you. I'm not sure if you've ever been in that kind of space that David was in, where you just loved and delighted in God. And in fact, where your deepest fear was losing that. Who among the dead praises you, God? But it's actually a really precious place to be. It's a precious place to be because it's where we were made to live. We were made to live in that situation where God is our greatest delight and our greatest joy. And losing him and losing the opportunity to honour him is our greatest fear. The problem is, I think, for, for us as human beings... Uh, is that so often it's only in sorrow and hardship that we kind of end up in that place. It's often when we're only in the place that David was in that we really see that and we really express that. It's often only when everything else is kind of ripped away from us that we suddenly realise that God is really the only thing worth having. When our health is taken away, when our joy in, in our relationships is taken away, when, when our house is taken away or, or our job is taken away or, or, or whatever it might be, our well-being. It's when we lose those things that we suddenly realise that actually there was no hope in those things ever at all. There was no joy in those things really. No, our ultimate hope and our joy is in our loving God and Father. To pray to God like David, Father, I don't care what happens, just don't let me lose you. Don't let me lose that chance to proclaim your name, to praise you. To pray to God like David did is such a powerful thing. It's a powerful motivator for God to answer our prayer because actually that's God's greatest gift to us. God's greatest gift to us is himself and the joy that we have in knowing him and delighting in him and in sharing that joy with others everything else in life plays a sec plays second fiddle to that god's great gift in sending jesus was not just that we could be forgiven and escape from eternal punishment god's great gift was himself and that we could know him and love him and enjoy him and be part of his family. And God delights to answer the prayer when we pray, Lord, don't let me lose that. The third motivation that David uses for God to save him is his miserable condition. He's anchored it in 
God's unfailing love and his delight in God, and thirdly, in his miserable condition. So he says in verse 6, I'm worn out from my groaning all night long. I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. David just wants God to know how bad it is. He's worn out from groaning. His bed is wet with tears, is drenched with tears. He's saying to God, God, this is what I feel like. I want you to know it's really bad. I want you to know, I want you to know what it feels like for me to be here, to be in this space, to live this day in and day out. God, you've got to know. You've got to know because you've got to help me. I was at a cafe uh, with a friend the other day and, um, and the waitress came out uh, and she asked, she said, you know, is everything okay? Uh, and I said, no, actually, I'm just feeling really emotional. Um, and she looked at me and I went, it's all right, I'm just joking. Uh, you're asking about the food, I'm just joking about the vagaries of language. It's stupid, isn't it? We, we, use, we use language like that all the time. Are you, you know, is everything okay? No, actually, it's not. It was clear that she wasn't asking how I was going at a personal level, isn't it? Because you don't tell people that you don't know how you're going. You know, you don't say to someone who you've never met, you know what, actually, my life is just falling apart. It's really awful. I just can't go on. You don't say that kind of thing because you don't know them. But you do say that kind of thing to people who you do know. You do say that kind of people to thing to people who you know will care. Even if they don't have the power to fix it, you'll say it to people who you know will care because you'll know that they'll want to fix it, even if they can't. And that's what David is doing with God. He's saying, God, you've got to know what I'm going through here because I know that you want to fix this. And better than that, I know that you can. You've got to know what I'm going through because I know that you love me and you care about me and you want to help me. We do that with our, as children, don't we, uh, with our parents. We would run to them and say, Mum, I've hurt myself. Or we'd wake up in the middle of the night after a nightmare and we'd go to our parents and we'd say, I just had a bad dream. And we do it with our friends. We say, look, life's just falling apart. And that's what David is doing with God. He's saying, God, this is awful. I can't go on. You've got to know. We don't just have to ask God for things. David wants us to know that we can also just tell him where we're at. We can just come and say, God, I can't do this today. I'm so tired. God, I've been up all night crying. And I've been doing that for, not, for days and for weeks. Father, I couldn't sleep tonight because my back was so sore. I, I got a couple of hours sleep and I've got to go to work and I've got to perform and I can't do it. I'm exhausted. 
and I've got to deal with the kids and I've got no patience and I'm hurting and I don't know how I'm going to make it through breakfast and I don't even know how I'm going to make it through the rest of the day. I can't do it. You've got to help me. We can tell God that because we know that he cares and we know that he's powerful enough to do something about it. David's view of God is so important. We need to know that God is not just a hard, God is not a hard-hearted monster in the sky who's impervious to our misfortune. He's not someone that we cry out to and tell him that things are going bad and we don't know whether he cares or not. God is a loving God who's distressed by our sorrow. How distressed is God by our sorrow? So distressed he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to take on our sorrow and misery, to be crucified and to overcome it. He's so distressed by our sorrow that Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit groans with us as we groan in our life as well. David has cried out to God for help and he grounds that prayer in the character of God and his unfailing love in God's desire to share uh, himself with us. Uh, in the brutal account of his misery, finally David expresses his confidence that God will answer him, his confidence in God's reply. He says in verse 8, Away from me, all you who do evil. David commands his enemies to leave him alone. Why is that? Because he says, the Lord has heard my weeping. He hasn't got the answer yet. He hasn't seen it play out in his circumstances yet. But he says, I know that God has heard my weeping. Get away from me. Your time is up. He repeats that again in verse 9. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. Then in verse 10, he expresses his conviction that God will finally deliver him. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. It's important for us to realize what a key step this is in the complaint process, if you like, in, in that process of bringing our concerns to God. It's important because I think most of us maybe finish with step one. We, we, you know, we only get to the God, you've got to help me. Some of us maybe get to step two. We call, call out to God and then we say, God, you've got to help me because I trust in you, who you are. I trust that you care about me. But the problem is if we don't get to step three, we, we don't have any hope. We need not only to grow in asking God to help us, we need to grow in learning to express our trust that he will as well. I've been here at the branch for seven and a half years. I preached, I, I don't know, roughly calculated the other day, I preached 360 sermons. I hope you remember every one of them. But actually, there's one thing that a number of people have told me over the years that they remember. And it doesn't come from any sermon. It comes from an announcement. There you go. You should always listen to announcements. It comes from the time when we were looking for an assistant pastor and we'd interviewed one guy and we'd offered him the position uh, and he declined. And I stood up here, I think, trying to talk to myself as much as to anyone else. And I said, I don't know what God is doing. 
but I'm determined to trust him. And a number of people have come to me over the years and said, I basically, no, they didn't mean this. I don't remember anything else you've said at 360 sermons, but I remember that. So from now on, church will be announcements week after week. But isn't that interesting? Why is that, that people remember that? I think that's because we find it so hard to trust God. We find it easy to call out to God. That's great. That's so important to be able to do. But we find it so hard to trust God and to say, I trust God. Uh, The reason I said that, actually, was because of a a dear friend of mine uh, and because we talked about that and because he prays prayers, he writes prayers uh, that he prays uh, every few months um, and he he writes these prayers out to help him to pray in helpful ways Uh, and I've taken up using many of those prayers that he has written Um, but one of the things he does every day is to pray prayers of trust he prays prayers in which he says, God, I trust you. I trust that you're going to do this. Um, and here are some of these prayers. Uh, let me share some of those with you to help you feed your prayers of trust as well. And if you've never prayed like this before, to help you to do it for the first time. So here are some of the prayers. I've put them up um, on, our, on the Branch Hub, our kind of member site online, so you can find the links up there or you can uh, Google Peter Adam Daily Prayers. But... Here are some of those prayers. Here's a prayer that I pray at the moment every day. God, I trust you. I trust you to provide all the gifts, the time, energy, and health for me to live for you and to do the good works uh, you have prepared for me to do. To place me where you want me to serve you, to use my life and ministry, and to hear and answer my prayers. On Mondays and Wednesdays, I pray this. Who am I? Whoever I am, Lord, you know me, and I am yours. Whoever I am, you know and understand me, for you made me, love me, and care for me. You own me, for you have created, chosen, redeemed, and adopted me in Christ. You forgive and accept me as you make me clean by the blood of Christ. You've dealt with the sins, regrets, mistakes, and failures of my past life and ministry. You have made me a temple of your Holy Spirit who dwells within me. You work all things for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Whoever I am, through the Holy Spirit, you are transforming me into the image of your Son. Though my outer nature is wasting away, you are renewing my inner nature every day. Through these slight momentary afflictions, you are working an eternal weight of glory. Through our trials, you are proving the genuineness of our faith for your glory and honour. Whoever I am, I wonder at your grace, compassion, kindness, faithfulness, and love. I repent of my sins and my sinfulness and claim your forgiveness through Christ. I ask you to help me to put to death the works of the flesh and bring forth in me the fruit of the Spirit. I ask you to sanctify me and make me useful in your service. I offer myself to you today as a living sacrifice to live for your glory. Whoever I am, you receive me and my daily sacrifice of myself in your mercy. You use me and my ministry in your mercy for your good purposes. You are worthy of all glory, honour, praise and worship. And on Thursdays, Fridays and Saturdays, I pray this. 
Heavenly Father, I trust your love, grace, and acceptance, and that you created and saved me to live for your glory. I trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, as the Saviour of the world, and your gospel as your power for salvation for all who believe. I trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, as the holy, loving, powerful, and generous Saviour, Head, Lord, and Judge of his Church. I trust you as the just judge of all people and that you will bring glory to yourself in the church and in Christ Jesus. We need to learn to say to God, not only, God, I can't do today. We need to learn to say to God, God, I trust that you'll get me through today. We need to learn to say to God, not only, God, this parenting gig is killing me, but God, I trust that you will use me and that you will give me the gifts and the wisdom and the perseverance that I need to do parenting today. We need to learn to say to God, not only I'm drenching my bed with tears since my wife or my friend or my husband or, or, my, or whoever it is, my father died, we need to learn to say, God, I trust you that you are sufficient for me in their gaping absence. We need to learn to speak, or not only, I should say, to ask God, we need to learn to speak God's words into our present circumstances. Let's do that now. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we... uh, We ask that you would have mercy on us and be gracious on us. Lord, we ask that you wouldn't discipline us in your anger or rebuke us in your wrath. Lord, we ask that you would have mercy on us and heal us. Because, Lord, we're a mass of sinful contradictions and disordered desires. And we need your grace, your transforming love to make us every day into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we can't stand to live another day apart from your grace and mercy. Lord, we ask you to do that, not because of anything in us, not because we've done anything wonderful. We haven't. We ask you to do it because of your unfailing love. We ask you to do it because you delight to show mercy, because you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We ask you to do it because, Lord, we want to praise your name day after day. We want to delight in you and we ask that you wouldn't take away from us that joy of knowing you and delighting in you and sharing that joy with others. We ask that you would do this, Lord, because life sometimes is tough and we're hurting and we don't know whether we can make it through the day, let alone the week or the month or the years ahead. Lord, you know. And Lord, we trust that you'll do that and help us and show us mercy and heal us and restore us and be gracious to us. We trust that you'll do that because you've shown you're trustworthy in history, in the world, and ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we trust that you've forgiven our sins for those of us who are in him. 
We've trust, we trust that you've sent us your spirit to dwell in us, to groan with us as we await our eternal inheritance. Lord, we trust because you've adopted us as your children. We are no longer your enemies, but beloved sons and daughters. Lord, we trust you. And so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.